I want to take as my text this morning that reading from Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1181. Page 1181. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning at verse 8, which I'd like us to read again so it's fresh in our minds. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and beginning at verse 8. In which Paul is in prison, and he's writing to his protege, uh, Timothy, who he had left in Ephesus, which is in present-day Asia, uh, or present-day Turkey, then called Asia Minor. And so he sent this letter to him from Rome, tell him about how to live and how to carry on as a leader in that local church. And in verse 8, he says, And remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, and for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound, and therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Indeed, the saying is a trustworthy one, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless or unfaithful, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This morning I want to talk about what endurance looks like and why it makes sense what endurance looks like and why it makes sense, makes sense to do it. We might ask even at the beginning, uh, does anyone really care what endurance looks like? And if not, would anyone assume, when faced with a difficult circumstance, would anyone assume that endurance makes any sense? Indeed, Wesley Hill in his book, titled Washed and Waiting, wrote this. He said, one of the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient endurance is actually a good thing. Listen to that again. One of the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient endurance is actually a good thing. But as Hill notes in the gospel, endurance is presented over and over as a good thing. In fact, it's a primary theme of the New Testament. But what does endurance look like? And that's where we want to begin with what endurance looks like. And of course, what we have here is Paul as an example, which example Paul is encouraging Timothy to follow and to make his own. In fact, Paul was wont to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you want to know what faithfulness looks like? Look at my life. And he lived such a life where he could say that with integrity. But it's Paul's example that we see here, an example that he offers to Timothy, and not only to Timothy, indeed, it's also for us. In fact, this is the chain, the apostolic chain, uh, if you like, 
that Paul teaches Timothy and Timothy teaches others and then those others teach others all the way down to the 21st century in Sugarland, Texas. And here we are reading together this ancient document penned probably by an amanuensis or someone else as Paul had trouble with his eyes, you know. And at the end of not a few of his letters, he'll say, and you see I'm writing now with my own hand in big letters, uh, putting his, his stamp of approval on the letter. But notice uh, chapter 2, just across the page there, chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, then you, my child, is a term of endearment for Timothy, his protege, who's actually serving, if you like, as bishop in Ephesus, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, Timothy. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, faithful teachers who will be able to teach others what I taught you. And what we learn from Paul is that if we would endure, Christ must be the focus. In fact, that's how he starts our text. Notice verse 8. If we would endure, we must have Christ as our focus. Notice verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, or it's in the present tense. Be remembering him. Be thinking about him. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel. And so Paul says that if we would endure, Christ must be our focus. That is, that Christ is to be the object of our habitual recollection. Not, not, not just um, someone we go to when we need something, but someone we look to when we're called upon to endure and to live the Christian life even when we find ourselves under some sort of pressure. And not just Christ, but the risen Christ. And so not just the, uh, the Christ of history, but the risen, exalted Christ, that is, the, not just the Christ that was, but in fact, the Christ that is. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, we have a little word about this Christ who was and the Christ who is now. And so we read this. The writer wrote, he said, long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and this is a first century document, in the, in, the, in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's not just sending the prophets, now he sends the son, whom he appointed to be heir of all things, and through, also, through whom also he created the world. He, the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the divine nature. And he upholds the universe. Even now, present tense, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, that is, on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you're wondering where he is, <laughs> that's where he is. The risen, exalted Christ. That is, as Paul describes him, Christ the King, the son of David, the heir of the great King of God, the man after God's own heart. 
The Christ without whom there's no gospel. Take Christ out of the gospel and you don't have a gospel any longer. Take Christ, indeed the risen Christ, which is Paul's primary argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Take the risen Christ out of the equation and you have no salvation, no hope, and you will die, Paul said, in your sin. This is the Christ without whom there is no gospel, no salvation, no forgiveness, no hope in the midst of suffering, no promise of eternal life, no kingdom yet to come in which God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Paul says that if we would endure, Christ must be our focus. It was his focus. These were the truths that kept him going, even in the midst of his suffering. And then Paul says, and if we would endure, suffering must be acceptable to us. In fact, this is part of the problem. And lots of times, like, we're surprised, like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what's going on? In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the life of the apostles, suffering was a major part of it. (laughs) Because in a world of darkness, if you insist on walking in the light, uh, you can expect to run into some trouble. But notice again, verses 8 and 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Don't forget that, Timothy. Think about him, the risen Christ, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, and for which I am, present tense, right now, suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, Timothy. And therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so Paul suffered. More precisely, he was suffering for the gospel, which is something Paul was encouraging Timothy to do as well. It's interesting, you know, Jesus uh, in his sermon on the plain, as we have it in Luke's gospel, he said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, because that's how they treated the false prophets. Johnny Cash's version of that went this way. It's good to know who hates you, And it's good to be hated by the right people. Well, Paul was hated by the right people. (laughs) He was doing good, and people who found that a challenge persecuted him for it. And he tells Timothy, do it too, Timothy. This is the sign that you're walking behind the rabbi and that you're covered in his dust. He suffered for doing what was good and right, and so will you. In fact, if you're not suffering, there's a problem. (laughs) In fact, notice uh, that same chapter 2, verse 3. Notice what he shares. Notice what he says there. And it's in the imperative. He's giving him a command. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Or notice if you want to flip over to chapter 3 and look at verse 12. 
Verse 12, indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> and so Paul was. He was suffering for the gospel. He was in prison again, considered by the state an enemy of the state. I think this probably thrilled Paul because this is exactly the pretense under which Jesus himself was executed. Jesus wasn't an enemy of the state. He wasn't anybody's enemy. But that's how he was treated. And they killed him for it. In fact, they're just about to do it to Paul himself. In fact, seemingly, this is the last time the Apostle Paul would go to prison. He had been in prison many times in many places under various different circumstances. This is his second, as, we, as, we, as far as we know, his second imprisonment in Rome. Just one of many cities where he had been imprisoned. But seemingly this would be his last because, according to his own words, his execution was apparently imminent. In fact, we read in this same letter, in chapter 4 and beginning at verse 6, he writes, Timothy, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. This is interesting. I'm, I'm going to die, and it's going to be like a sacrifice and an act of worship to God. God, everything I have is yours, even my own life, which I pour out for you in obedience to what you called me to do, even though these people who are going to take my life would rather I stop I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, judgment day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For all who can't wait to see him. And so Paul suffered for the gospel. And yet, seemingly, suffering needn't thwart what God wants to get done through us. Notice, again, verses 9 and 10. Talks about the gospel in verse 8, for which, verse 9, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. <laughs> but the word of God is not bound. I'm bound, but the message isn't bound. And therefore, since the message isn't bound, I endure everything, including what I'm going through now for the sake of the elect. Those whom God has chosen who will respond to it when they hear according to his timetable that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so Paul says that uh, he's bound with a chain, but the message of the gospel's not. In fact, he talks about this again in this same letter, chapter 4 and verse 16, giving a little bit more biographical material. Interesting. Notice chapter 4, verse 16, or I'll read it to you. He says, at my first defense, that's like his first hearing, you like, if you like. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Well, there's a church in Rome. There were people in Rome 
But when Paul was on trial, they were all somewhere else, maybe somewhere a little more safe. That was the problem that Peter was having, you remember? Uh, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I'm not. Well, you're, I thought I saw you in the garden. No, you didn't. Come on, man. <laughs> Your Galilean accent and the clothes you're wearing gives you away. You're from the north. You're one of his disciples. I tell you, and the scripture says he swore an oath. I don't know who he is. So Peter comes into approximation with Jesus. He's standing there nearby. But when he's questioned, he doesn't know who Jesus is. Believers in Rome didn't even get near the, near the, near the judgment hall. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Why is that, Paul? Because you're not walking with God? <laughs> the problem is he was. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. <laughs> Why are you here, Paul? Well, let me tell you. Let me start from the beginning. And everyone in that judgment hall got to hear the gospel. The story, no doubt, of his own conversion. Or in Philippians, he writes in another letter that he wrote from prison. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, and he said this, I want you to know, writing to the believers at Philippi, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. <laughs> so that it has become known, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. <laughs> the Roman soldier to whom I'm chained, when he changes, or when he, uh, changes shift, another one comes, and I tell him, then I tell the second guy the gospel. And the first guy goes and says, that guy's mad. You know what he told us? And he shares the gospel unwittingly by just repeating the story. And on and on and on. And so Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so Paul endured living and sharing to the very end. He endured for the sake of God's elect, those who would hear and those through, through the gospel that God would change and save and deliver and be transformed by the gospel. And he just kept living that way. He spent two and a half years in prison in Caesarea. Anybody else would have thought that was a great, huge waste of time. But it wasn't, because things were going on. And he had visitors, and he shared, and he shared with the guards, and on and on. You've heard of the Apostle Paul, haven't you? Gregory Boyle, in his great book, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it, called Tattoos on the Heart. He said this, the slow work of God gets done when we are faithful. And so that's the first thing. And then quickly, the second, and finally, why endurance 
makes sense. We looked at what it looks like now. Why does it make sense? What Paul says is this, is that endurance makes sense because even if we should endure to the point of death, death is not the end. Notice verse 11. This is a saying that is trustworthy and to be accepted. Quote, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And so Christ died and rose again from the dead. And if we are spiritually united to him, if we're in Christ, in fact, that was a, a phrase that Paul used all throughout his writings, in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. Christ is the one that the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And when you're spiritually united with Him, the Father looks at you and He sees you in the Son and He says, I'm well pleased. That is by definition what salvation is, to be united to him with whom the Father is well pleased, to be united with the one who died for all of your sins and rose again. And to die with him is also to be raised with him. And indeed, to be exalted with him. In fact, John writing about this wrote and explained it in a slightly different way. First John chapter 3, John wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet, uh, yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Why, why, can, why can Paul put up with, why can Paul write this so calmly when he knows he's just about to be executed because of the power of this truth etched upon the fleshly tablets of his heart? Our Philippians chapter 3 and beginning at verse 20, Paul writing from prison and writing to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so endurance makes sense because even if we should endure to the point of death, death isn't the end. And then Paul says that endurance makes sense because even if endurance should lead to degradation, some degrading experience, such as ridicule or false accusation or loss of property, a loss of freedom, or even as Paul is facing, an ignominious death for no good reason. Even if endurance should lead to degradation, Paul says, God will exalt you. Indeed, notice that first part of verse 12. For if we endure, Timothy, if we endure, we'll also reign with him. In fact, Paul writing to the Romans mentioned that. 
In Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, he said, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit, our mind, our heart, that we're the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. <laughs> heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ. Whatever belongs to God belongs to us. Whatever belongs to Christ belongs to us. Provided that we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, these chains... Or when he wrote to the Galatians, he said, at the very end, he said, you know, go easy on me. Go easy on me. Because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, in the 11th chapter of his second letter, he listed all how many times he was beaten and scourged and imprisoned and so he says here, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in, in us. And so endurance makes sense because even if endurance should lead to degradation, God, because you have been faithful, will exalt you. And then Paul presents a warning. Notice verse 12 again in that second part. In fact, the whole thing. If we endure, he, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, you know what? He'll deny us. That's a very interesting and sobering statement. It's a principle that finds its origin in the teaching of Jesus himself. You know, sweet Jesus. It's just being straightforward. It's in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Here's Matthew's version of it. Matthew 10 and beginning at verse 32. Jesus said, so whoever acknowledges me before men, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Yeah, I am as a matter of fact. Anyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's a sobering statement. And so Paul says what he says. But then he adds a comforting reminder. <laughs> That's a good way to end. We need, we need to end on that, don't we? Notice verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is to say, regardless of what we do, Christ's character remains intact. If we're unfaithful to Christ, that doesn't change his character. He's still faithful. He's still trustworthy. Indeed, after you've denied him or if you've been unfaithful in some way, he's always there. He's like the, he's like the father in the story, of the, in the, story of, the, of, the, of the prodigal son. He's always waiting with hopefulness that you will come from the far country and come back to his house, come back to fellowship and faithfulness. But regardless of what we do, Christ remains faithful. He remains trustworthy because regardless of what we do, he still is who he is. 
And what Christ is amongst many other things is faithful. It seems to me that I've quoted this quote from John Stott rather frequently in recent weeks. John Stott in his book, People My Teachers, wrote this, it is precisely because God is faithful that faith in God is reasonable because there is no one more faithful than God. And so how about you? Notwithstanding how many people would tend to equate the good life with an easy life. One time rector of Trinity Church in Boston, which is still there, an author of the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Phillips Brooks, famously wrote this. He said, do not pray for an easier life. Rather pray to be stronger men or stronger women, as the case may be. Do not pray for tasks that are equal to your powers. Rather pray for powers that are equal to the tasks to which you're being called. And then what you do will not be a miracle, but rather you yourself will be the miracle. And so I wonder, is that how you would describe your life? As a miracle? A divine work of God? What endurance looks like? And why it makes sense? Let us pray. You want to do something amazing in us. And oftentimes, the opportunity to do something amazing comes to us in the form of a trial, the form of a difficulty, in which you are saying to us, Lord, if we have ears to hear, I'm going to get you through this, and it's going to be powerful. So think on my son because he's been this way before and walk with him. In fact, he's going to walk with you through it. Help us, Lord, to hear you speak in such ways. Help us to be especially alert when the trial comes, when the difficulty comes. so that uh, our lives might indeed be made a miracle. That you might do something in us that perhaps we've never done before. That our response to what might seem a sort of a characteristic and familiar difficulty will be a different response than all the responses previously. And then we'll have evidence like, well, Lord, you're definitely at work here because I never would have responded that way before, left to myself. And so, Lord, give us the grace to do it. Help us to think of Jesus. Help us to think of Paul. Help us to remember, should we call ourselves Christians, that that's what that means, to order and structure and fashion our lives after his. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.